So this is really interesting because I had a conversation this morning with a new client about four or five things that they really need to master. And the first thing on the list was their product naming convention. So they had a product, they sell jewelry, and they had a product on their website called Gold Necklace. Firstly, the chances of them ranking for Gold Necklace are very slim. They're a very small company. It's a very broad search term. But also it's a search term where you could challenge the intent. If somebody's searching for Gold Necklace... Are they looking to buy a product? Possibly not. Are they looking for information on gold necklaces? Yeah, maybe. Are they looking for trends? Are they looking for images? Are they looking for resellers? Are they looking how to manufacture one? It's quite a broad intent for a keyword like that, but also the chances of them ranking are almost non-existent. So we tried to help them and encourage them to create a naming convention that they could take advantage of more intent-driven traffic, but also less competitive keywords. Hello and welcome to the Ecom Ops Podcast. We believe that there is more than enough content focused on e-commerce marketing and not enough content celebrating the real heroes of e-commerce, those running the operation. Each week, we find and interview an e-commerce operations expert to share the secrets behind how some of this industry's most exciting businesses are run. I'm your host, Norbert Strappler, the CEO of SingSpider. Hello and welcome to the Ecom Ops Podcast. Today I'm talking to Matt from Marketing Labs. He is the CEO and specialist for SEO and AdWords and Crow and Growth and e-commerce marketing and what else? Tons of buzzwords I could throw against you. So he is really someone who has a lot of experience in driving revenue to e-commerce stores and the growth specialist who can really help you grow your store. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. How do I, uh, how do I keep up with an intro like that? Yeah. Just prove it. <laughs> no, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure we can have a fun discussion here about all these great marketing things you can do, but tell me a bit about yourself. How did you get into that market and especially um, into that e-commerce um, traction? Yeah, it's a long time ago now. I might not look that old, but I've been doing this now for 23 years. Long wow. time. Did I... you start with 12? <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> I started my first e-commerce business at 16. And I, when I left school, I decided not to pursue higher education and to jump straight into all things digital. Back then, there wasn't really a community like there is now. SEO wasn't a thing. Google was barely a thing. Google Ads wasn't a thing. Social media even wasn't that much of a thing. We yeah. had MySpace and a few other things, but figuring out ways of driving revenue for e-commerce businesses back then was incredibly difficult. You'd rely on maybe forums, directories, just really trying hard to build your own communities. So that was a long time ago. I had my first e-commerce store at quite a young age. The first year was incredibly difficult, but then after that, you start figuring things out. You start understanding how you can make things work. We had a pretty good success of it. And then every year from there, we developed a new e-commerce store. So we'd everything we learned during that process, we'd then implement on the next one. And it worked pretty well. I think we got to 2011. And uh, you know, at that point, we had 10 or 11 e-commerce businesses. We sold most of them and moved on to figuring this all out for other businesses instead of ourselves. So yeah, that's a long story. I'm sure we'll come on to various things that we've learned during that process, but we do things very differently to most agencies. It's a bit of a cliche and a bit of a cheesy thing to say. A lot of agencies, I think they're different. 
but we genuinely are. And like I say, I'm sure I'll be answering why pretty soon. That, that would be very cool to know about that. Let me ask you a question. You did so many e-commerce stores. Which technology did you use when you built your stores? And which technology would you recommend new web store owner? That is a great question. When I was 16, actually, I remember downloading a HTML template. Oh, okay. I got it from a torrent. <laughs> oh, nice. So not I, even I, template monster. <laughs> yeah, no, no. And when I was building it in staging, I realized pretty quickly that it probably wasn't too safe. <laughs> so I scrapped that and purchased a HTML template. But it was pure HTML, no backends, all manual. Everything was manually built page by page. Luckily, the product range was only, I think I had maybe 40 or 50 products. So even though it was time consuming, it wasn't as time consuming as it could have been. Things then developed. I, we used a platform for a long time called OS Commerce, which I think still exists, but I don't, I've not used it for a long time, OS Commerce. Moved through OS Commerce to WooCommerce, Magento. Shopify didn't exist then, so that was never an option. Other platforms now that are doing pretty well, like Big Commerce, you know, they weren't a thing back mm. then either. I think our recommendation for which platform might be best depends entirely on the business. We have clients who actually the most important thing for them is ease of use. And Shopify is great for that. But at the same point in the UK, Shopify has some limitations. There's always the canonical limitations of internal links and things like that. The navigation links going to collection pages that actually aren't the canonical version of the page. But also in the UK, obviously, all Shopify stores are hosted in Canada and the US. That gives, obviously, quite a strong signal to search engines um, where the audience of that website is. So we often find in the UK websites that use Shopify actually rank for more keywords in the US than they do the UK. Oh, really? So there are various, yeah, we see that quite a lot, yeah. And there's other hints, obviously, that matter. And there's other hints that are helpful to search engines to show them where your audience is. But that's certainly one of them, and it can make a difference. So Shopify, we can recommend Shopify at various points, depending on the business, but Generally, we like to encourage BigCommerce, Magento, or potentially WooCommerce if it's a smaller store. Yeah, I've seen that pattern in Europe quite a lot. So Shopify is a great, really great tool. So I love it. Yep. And I've seen that as well so far, but it's growing here in the, in the German speaking area, at least. I've seen a huge growth of Shopify in the last couple of years, especially during the time of Corona, where yep. a lot of small yeah, retailers started to also sell online and very quick shop is done with Shopify. So it was a huge push, I think. But we mm. also see a lot of WooCommerce, a lot of Shopware, which is a German company and it's very well known. BigCommerce is not established here in this area, but Magento, of course, is and PrestaShop is also something. Yeah, PrestaShop seems to be quite popular. Shopify have done an incredible job. They, they've yeah. done a fantastic job. Their market share is obviously, it's no coincidence that they've got a big market share, but they've catered to a certain audience and they've mm. done that incredibly well. I think there comes a point, I'm not suggesting that everybody would need to do this, but for some businesses, there comes a point where it might hold them back a little bit when they get to a certain size in limitations of what you can do technically and with the platform various issues like creating staging environments or getting access to files and things like that can be slightly more challenging, but everything's still possible. It's just how you go about it. Yeah, absolutely. What is ever-changing that the landscape of e-commerce is always changing? What have you seen in this couple of years? How did that involve 
So I've seen quite a few things this last couple of years that's really interesting. So the first one, there was a good phase of gamification going on where e-commerce businesses are really trying to encourage Shopify. There's an app on Shopify that's great for this, where you'll spin the wheel in the sidebar and they've almost encouraged gamification. And ah, it's, almost yeah. it's almost like gambling actually a little bit, but you spin the wheel for your discount. You know, so I've seen a lot of gamification going on actually in the e-commerce space over the last couple of years. And I think as ever, if you do it correctly, it can work quite nicely. If you don't, it can feel a little bit disingenuous. You know, if you get a 5% discount code and you've spun the wheel, you might be thinking, well, did somebody else get 25% discount code? Did somebody get 50% discount code? There's maybe a negative connotation there as well, potentially. Yeah, the story is with the newsletter sign up, get the next 10% discount or a five-year discount for the next order. Yeah, sign up for the newsletter, get the discount, delete from the newsletter, sign up again, get another discount yeah. for the next order. Exactly. Every, every single time you place an order, you then use a different email address to make sure you get yeah. the best price. And yeah, there's been a lot of gamification and it's an interesting one because I think there's a really interesting balance that needs to be had to make sure that your customers think that you're genuine and you're not just marketing all the time at them. And instead of them being just a number, you know, that they're actually genuinely mm -hmm. a customer. Another thing that seems to have happened quite a lot, or obviously and this has taken over the world anyway, is, is the impact of AI on e-commerce mm -hmm. and personalization as well, especially if you can lean on AI for personalization. That's taking a big step. One of the things I've seen a lot as well, especially over the last six months, and I particularly don't think this is a great idea, to be honest, is using AI to, to create content for e-commerce stores. I've seen quite a lot of e-commerce stores that have churned out thousands of product descriptions using AI. I worry about the accuracy, but actually above everything, I worry about the impact that might have on their search visibility. I'm sure search engines won't appreciate that. And I know their argument might be initially, it's, as long as it's good for the user, it might be good for us. But we do an awful lot of testing. We have hundreds of websites that we use to break to build, break, test, build, break, test. And it's a continuous cycle of just figuring things out. Um, and AI content is one of them. So we've been playing with AI content probably for three or four years now. We have about 100 websites, not specifically e-commerce websites, but about 100 websites that, that we use purely just to churn AI content out and see the kind of impact in search visibility, search engines. And I think we saw a very noticeable decline two or three months ago for most of those websites. I would say at least 50% of them have lost 90% of their search visibility. Very big impact. Some of them less so, but yeah, a big chunk of them have seen, have seen. And I think that'll only get worse. So AI is huge, obviously, but I think people need to work out better ways of using it as part of a process and part of a system instead of to be the system. It's great for insights. It's great for supporting your processes, but not necessarily great always for being your process. What I've seen a lot when it comes to product description recently, especially when ChatGPT really has become useful yeah, and you really were able to use it with meaningful, good phrases to rewrite product descriptions a bit that are used in each and every store. So if you resell products that everyone else has and you just put in the description of that product and say, hey, come on, rewrite that for me would be better for my search engine optimization. Does this work? We have quite a few clients who, so their business models, they have their own products that they might manufacture or they might import them, but they're their own products exclusive to the UK. 
and they'll have a distribution network, resellers and wholesalers who will buy that product from them. They also potentially sell them on to third parties who will sell on their e-commerce stores, but they also have e-commerce stores themselves. And we have a particular client who we started working with about just over 12 months ago. And one of the first things we implemented for them was in their database, two descriptions. The first description was the one that they were going to use on their own e-commerce website. And the other description, which was generated by, by AI, was a description that they'll be passing through to all their resellers. And we saw a visibility increase relatively quickly from doing that. So that's, yeah, that's really important. If you're one of a hundred websites that have the same description, what are you doing differently outside of maybe your technical foundations, maybe the link equity that, that your backlink profile generates? What are you doing differently to determine that you should be ranking for that, uh, for those yeah. search terms? If your content is just no different to a hundred other stores. And if you're in control of that, you can make sure that the one you write that's really high quality, that thinks about things like why was this product manufactured in the way it was manufactured? What materials does it use? What unique features does it have? What's the history of this product? Where is it manufactured and why is it manufactured there? Are there any unique properties of it? If it's clothing, is it breathable? Does it wash easy? Does it need to be ironed? All of these different things that might contribute towards a really high quality product description. You can then make sure that your product description has everything that you know your audience needs to see, but then you're passing on an AI-generated version of that to resellers. And if they want to improve that, you know, that, that's great, that's on them, but actually you're limiting then the impact of just having the same description as hundreds of other retailers. So it can be quite valuable for that, and we've seen the results firsthand on multiple occasions as well. There's not just one occasion where that's worked nicely. We see that a lot. That's really an interesting hint that especially producing companies or resellers should think about that. I'm working with the dropshipper, for instance, doing the same thing, actually, and giving the product data also to vendors. And yeah, he already thought about the same to rewrite the content because his ranking could be affected by tens of resellers having the same product description as he has. Absolutely a good idea. Yeah, exactly. And it, but it's a huge job, isn't it? If you have yeah. a thousand products, writing a yeah. description for a thousand products is challenging. Writing two descriptions for a thousand products, that's a big job. If that's you can lean on AI, show, yeah. yeah, if you can lean on AI to pass those, pass the responsibility of those on and you write your own high quality description for your own website, you'll yeah. be in a much better position. That's great. In your experience, what are some typical common mistakes that e-commerce businesses do regarding their digital marketing strategy? Okay, so this is really interesting because I had a conversation this morning with a new client about four or five things that they really need to master. And the first thing on the list was their product naming convention. So they had a product, they sell jewelry, and they had a product on their website called Gold Necklace. If you think about the intent of somebody searching, firstly, the chances of them ranking for Gold Necklace are very slim. They're a very small company. It's a very broad search term. But also, it's a search term where you could challenge the intent. If somebody's searching for Gold Necklace, are they looking to buy a product? Possibly not. Are they looking for information on Gold Necklaces? Yeah, maybe. Are they looking for trends? Are they looking for images? Are they looking for resellers? Are they looking how to manufacture one? It's quite a broad intent for a keyword like that. But also, the chances of them ranking are almost non-existent. So we tried to help them and encourage them to create a naming convention that they could take advantage of more intent-driven traffic, but also less competitive keywords. For example, in this instance, 
the necklace had had diamantes. So straight away, diamantes can go into the product name. It was nine karat gold. Straight away, nine karat gold can go in. Specifically, actually, this one was for teenagers, female teenagers. So again, that can go into the product name. And all of a sudden, you've got a, a much longer tail product name where you can start capitalizing on different audiences, but different audiences that are lower in the conversion, but they're closer to converting and they're easier to rank for. So I think that's a big mistake. I see a huge amount. Th- those naming yeah. conventions are quite important, but also you can take that to the next level. Now, you might have certain situations where on the website, you could duplicate that product and give it two different names. There's, there are certain issues with that. Obviously, if you've got people looking around your website, it might cause confusion. But if you're generating traffic and revenue f- through something like Google Shopping or Google Ads, there's no reason actually why you can't change the product naming convention specifically in your Google Shopping feed. So we had this with a client who sells a particular type of product, very boring product, actually. But if you go to a music gig, you might see the speaker wires going across the dance floor. The product that this particular client sold was a cable protector. So it's a piece of rubber and the wire sits inside it. People can't trip over the wire. Very boring and very useful, but very boring. But the thing is, in their industry, they call this a cable protector. There's some surge volume for cable protector. But everybody else, all of their competitors call their products cable protectors. But actually, there's so many other ways that product can be described where there's little competition and still an audience. For example, wire protection, cable protection, rubber covers, cable covers. There's so many ways it can be described. So what we did is we took their Google Shopping feed. We duplicated that product, I think, maybe 10 times and gave it 10 different names and fed all of them through to Google Shopping, and all of a sudden their audience is 10 times higher. I think within a month, their revenue had increased 1,200% from that wow. product. So it's very what powerful. What a nice one. It's really, this is something, as you mentioned before, that you make different, right? Yeah, exactly. I've, I've never heard this before. It's great. But how does Google Shopping deal with it? Do you need to duplicate the entire product on the store, or is Google okay with it if the product is named different and you just change the feed? Yeah, so that's a good question. Technically, from Google's end, it's an A to B test. So what you're doing is you're analyzing which one might perform best. Who decides how long that A to B test needs to last? If Google finds it and has a problem with it, you could always reduce, remove the poor performers. In my experience, that is, it's never been mentioned. We've been doing this for that particular tactic we've been doing for at least maybe eight to 10 years, and there's never been an issue with it. So yes, as far as Google's concerned, I think they would just treat it as an A to B test. Because ultimately, all you're doing is you're capitalizing on two different audiences. I don't think they'd be too concerned anyway, because you're paying for more clicks. So as they're generating more revenue, I'm sure they'll be happy with that. That's awesome. That's awesome. We have two, three. Okay. Not paying attention to collection or category pages. That's a big one. Do you know, yeah. the amount, we have a fashion, a client who's in the fashion industry. And in the fashion world, obviously, your range of products changes throughout the year. They usually have four seasons, you know, they'll have a winter range, a summer range, so on and so on. And generally what tends to happen is they'll remove those products from their website when the season changes. And what they're inadvertently doing is they're building up two, three, four months worth of equity to those pages. And they're probably starting to rank organically, but not quite getting to where they need to be. And then they're removing the page and all of a sudden Google's having to relearn their new range and figure out where they should be ranking. And, you know, it's a process. Most pages, most new pages will take anywhere between three months and a year before they start gaining good visibility in search results. 
So actually what they're doing is they're getting a step or two up the ladder and then removing the products. One way to counter that is by paying closer attention to collection and category pages instead of product pages. It's quite common. I've noticed e-commerce businesses, by and large, they do put a bit of effort into their product descriptions, but less so collection and category descriptions. And actually, that's a place that is almost evergreen, if you like. Your collection pages will probably always remain. Your product pages might disappear. But what you'll do is you'll be adding products to those collection pages as time goes by. So really, it's those collection pages that in for SEO specifically that are quite powerful. So yeah, I would say this, the, that there's a big mistake there for not putting enough emphasis on those collection pages. Obviously, there's a balance to be had as well because you don't just want to fill it with content. I just wanted to say that's a bit difficult. Conversion rate optimization guy would say, hey, put the products on top and don't waste too much with the content on top. They want to see products and buy it. While this SEO guy will say, hey, you must put the content above the fold because if you put it below the fold, it will not be considered that much as it would be above the product. So it's, yeah, it's a bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's a balance, isn't it? It's a balance because ultimately yeah. if you're a good SEO. Actually, what you want is to generate revenue. It's not just yeah. about visibility. It's not just about the rankings. It's not just about the traffic. If you're a good SEO, you want to drive more revenue for your clients. A few years ago, there was a challenge here. We saw, I've seen it less over the last year or so, but I still see it sometimes. Because of those kind of challenges, I've seen e-commerce businesses remove certain elements from the mobile view mm -hmm. of their website. So we had somebody come to us actually quite recently, maybe six months ago, and they'd seen a big dip in visibility in search results. And their revenue, I think, had declined maybe 30%. And when we analyzed it, what had happened, it was as simple as that they reworked the mobile version of their page. They decided that content wasn't particularly that useful for mobile views. So they removed the descriptions from category pages and the long description from product pages. Now, obviously, Google is mostly now crawling web pages through the mobile view, the mobile bots. Now, if they're not seeing the content, that's going to have an impact on visibility. What Google have confirmed, and from our testing, we don't see any reason not to believe this, is that they understand now that you know you can have accordions or toggles with a description and a button to read more and expand the content. So if somebody does want to read it on a mobile without ruining their experience, you could have a sentence at the start of the collection page with a read more button, expand it out, Still good for UX then, still great for SEO. So that's the happy medium really is using accordions or toggles to to keep some of that content hidden away on, on mobile view at least. But that tends to work quite well. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. You have seen tons of projects and a lot of pages and e-commerce websites, small and big ones. What are the key factors to consider when you're optimizing a site for better search engine visibility and the balance of conversion rates? This is an interesting conversation because I have this conversation quite a lot and there is always a balance to be had between SEO and conversion optimization and intent specifically. Intent always drives higher conversions if the intent is right, which comes back to SEO and the keywords that are being targeted and the content on the page. I think, so one of the key considerations is marrying up each part of that jigsaw so a mistake I see quite a lot is assuming that each channel is its own entity. But actually, when you start understanding that most user journeys, they'll involve various touch points. The first touch point might be from social or search. The second might be an advert. Inevitably, often the last touch point before a conversion might be direct. 
But if you're analyzing that data in the right way and you're understanding the impact that each touch point has, that really makes a big difference as part of your digital marketing efforts. We had a client who they thought that their Google ads weren't particularly working too well because it wasn't driving many first click conversions. Most of their first click conversions were coming from organic, but also it wasn't driving many last click conversions because most of their last click conversions were coming from direct. They wanted to run an experiment where they cut their spend, their ad spend in half. I think they were spending about £50,000 a month on ads. They wanted to cut it to 25000 just to see the impact of it. It was a test they were willing to do just to see what kind of impact it had on revenue. And the impact was pretty huge, actually, because it was a really important middle touch point. So I think that's a big mistake that most digital marketing agencies make, is really focusing too much on one particular conversion type and attribution model. So that's the first thing that I'd say is something that's important. The second thing, though, is I would almost always, very rarely would I say something needs to be done for SEO if it's bad for the user experience. There's a very strong theory that if, it's, if you do something that's good for user experience, it should also really be good for SEO because yeah. it's good for the user. And that's what you're trying, you're, trying to, you're trying to pull in users that are very relevant and intent-driven into your website. Otherwise, it becomes a vanity metric, and that can impact conversion rates. So they're the two things, really, that stand out to me. Of you know, They're areas where I think if you want high-performance digital marketing campaigns, you've really got to be focusing on those two things above all else. Now, once you've got that kind of mentality and that process, for me, it always then starts with technical SEO. So. Yeah. At that point, you've really got to make sure your website is functioning correctly, is showing quality signs to search engines, is crawlable, the right pages are being encouraged to be indexed. Almost see it as a bit of a map. You're providing search engines with a map to say, actually, this is this we're directing you this way because this page really is the page that we want you to index for these particular search terms. And we think this page is better for users. I think the most common issues we tend to see with those first early phases of development when it comes to technical SEO, canonical issues are very common, especially around search. So the amount of e-commerce websites I see where their search results pages are indexable is pretty scary. This is very easy to take advantage from a negative SEO perspective as well. And I have seen this before. We had a client two years ago. They weren't a client at the time, but they came to us and said, our visibility has declined. Can you help? And we had a look at it, and actually what we started noticing was somebody was building a huge amount of links to their search results URLs under the uh, using the keywords that collection pages would use. So they sold trainers organically before they noticed their drop. Adidas trainers was one of their most popular landing pages. They were ranking fairly well for quite a lot of keywords for their Adidas landing page. And what we noticed was there were seven or eight search pages starting to be indexed by Google, diluting the performance of the page that was doing well because those search pages were indexable and somebody was building links to them externally. We're seeing those links coming in and saying, hold on a minute, we've got these pages here that exist. We're seeing equity come to these pages and actually they're cannibalizing all of these other pages that are performing well and diluting the performance. So by not setting up your search results page correctly, actually you're open to negative SEO in that sense. And that then can impact the performance of pages that are doing well. In that case, specifically, their robots.txt file wasn't blocking the search results pages and they had no canonical tags on any of their pages. 
So Google didn't particularly understand any directives towards which, which pages they wanted indexing. Very interesting and a huge help, I think, for people that are facing such issues. And I've seen that myself as well, that search results are being indexed. And this is, of course, not the thing that I want to see as a store owner, mm -hmm. although I have more pages in the index, but not these one, please. Do you still see things like the, the good old search engine optimization, like keywords, keyword stuffing and search engine optimized texts? Yeah. Do you know what's interesting? As little ago as last week, I think it was Wednesday last week, we were approached by somebody who wanted to work with us. We said no in the end for various reasons. But do you know what was really peculiar? Their best performing page when we analyzed their analytics was ranking in the first few positions for about 100 keywords. And their page was incredibly old school. It was so bad. It was very stuffed, very stuffed. They had four, I think four, maybe four or five H1 headers that basically had the same thing on the page. One of the H1 headers was hidden. So it was white text on white background. I haven't seen that for a long time, but they were ranking. So, okay, so just to give you an idea, we don't fully know why they were ranking, but just to give you an idea of the things that we looked at, very little competition, actually. They, were in, they managed to find this sweet spot of a product that has reasonable search volume, but actually very little competition. So I think that played a part in why they were ranking is because the, there wasn't really anybody else that deserved to be there. But also they actually had a pretty good link profile. So I think that contributed towards those rankings. But it, it surprised me because I've not seen that for quite some time, specifically white text on the white background. <laughs> this is um, really old school. Very, yeah, I think at least 10 years. Well, at least, yeah, at least. That was very common in the black hat community 20 yeah. years ago. Yeah, for sure. And at a good time, we sell ink for printers, ink printers yeah. that can print out paper yeah. <laughs> from HP, Canon, Brother. Yeah, yeah, Expert. yeah. Not Sony, not Samsung. You still see that on eBay a lot. Somebody yeah. selling, yeah. sell, we'll use Adidas trainers as an example. Somebody selling Adidas trainers and it'll say next to it, not Nike, or, you know, not Nike, however you want to pronounce it. Um, but that used to be big in the SEO world. Less so now, luckily. Things to, tend to have got a bit better. It got better, definitely. Yeah. But sometimes you still see it. And when you are talking to customers that are doing web stores for a long time and want to optimize an old store, you still see that. And mm -hmm. they still ask you about, can you write SEO text and stuff mm -hmm. it with keywords? Yeah, that, that's simply old and doesn't work anymore. One thing we always have different opinions when you talk to different people is... Yeah. Link building really worth it or is it even possible anymore to do a successful link building or how do you think about that? Yeah, so it is worth it for sure. We have websites that we test as well as some clients where the only marketing, not just the only SEO, but the only marketing they do is link building. We have a particular client who we've grown their re revenue, I think in the last 12 months, maybe 220% revenue increase. And the only marketing they do is link building. No other okay. SEO whatsoever. No other marketing whatsoever. Clearly has an impact when done correctly. But we also have a huge amount of test sites that we build a lot of links to. And if done in the right way, it can be incredibly effective. But there's the key to it, if it's done in the right way, because uh, the vast majority of link building campaigns aren't done in the right way. 
that in fact this is an area where actually I would say the industry is at least five or ten years behind. Mm-hmm. Um, it tends to happen in SEO anyway, doesn't it? There's a big audience, there's a big group, if you like, a big community where they're using tactics that are pretty outdated. But if you're building links in the right way, they can be pretty powerful. I, I think what is the right way? I get, uh, I have a few websites, and of course, with ThinkSpider, we are visible now at a lot of those communities and. I don't know, three times, four times a week, I get an email about the link building. How should I do it if I should not ask that way? The first thing is probably to ignore those emails because oh, they'll yeah. certainly be the wrong way. Yeah. Okay. So there's two important things here. And the first one is it's incredibly popular at the moment, especially on, on platforms like LinkedIn, for you to read content like, I grew traffic for this website from... 5,000 visitors a month to 200,000 visitors a month, and we didn't build one backlink. Okay, that's great. They've done that with saturation of content. They've created a huge amount of content, particularly one I saw actually a couple of weeks ago that there was a case study for one. And I think they worked, I worked out that each piece of that content that they created, each, page, each individual URL that they created, it averaged about five visits per page. So they created that much content that, yes, the raw numbers look incredible, that you've increased traffic to 200,000. But actually, that's only a few visitors per page. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when you actually analyze case studies like that, what you realize pretty quickly is they might not have built any links, but the website itself already had links to begin with. And actually, because you're creating such a high volume of content, links are naturally occurring organically. If that mm-hmm. content is good content, it's working as link bait. And actually, when you're churning out that much content, you're going to get linked to quite a lot. So in those kind of instances, then, okay, they haven't manually built links, but they've had links that have been acquired through organic means. Okay, so then the second thing, we come on to the second thing here. What makes a good link? And this is really important because Google have got incredibly good at ignoring links that actually aren't that valuable. And it's all about the signals that they might pass, the kind of equity that those links can pass. You've got lots of different signals. It'd probably take a podcast in itself to run through these kind of signals. You can, just on a broad level, at a top level, you've got things like anchor text. Years ago, people would build links specifically targeting keyword-rich anchor text, which can be really damaging for external links pointing to your website now if they're not done in the right way. You've got to compound those with things that make that you know that are very natural for somebody reading it to want to click it. You've got placement of where that link is on the page. You've got audience signals. Who is that audience? How relevant is that audience? How relevant is the website? Does the website itself link out frequently? And when they do, you know, is it obvious that it's just a link farm? Or even if it's not a link farm, do they have editorial guidelines that make it a high quality link? But then you can take it to the next level. So when you splice up a link profile, you can then start analyzing what proportion of the links come from the same linking IP address or even C block IP address. You can pretty quickly spot link farms that way. We have a a client that when we first started working with them, the vast majority of their links came from the same linking C block IP addresses. And it turns out that they were advertising with a group of companies who own a thousand plus websites. And they had a link on every page of all 1,000 of those websites, but they're all hosted on the same C blocks. So you can start seeing then patterns for why search engines might devalue or ignore those kind of links. The key to it, I think, is all about audience. 
It's all about audience. If you find a website where the audience and the content matches perfectly, that website isn't set up to just link out. You can spot them a mile away, whether they cover similar topics all the time, or you'll see a news website that might talk about politics. It might talk about tech. It might talk about all sorts of different things. And it's they're, they're not experts enough in any of those areas for that link yep. to be worthwhile. So when done in the right way, with the right considerations, analyzing the right technical signals, yeah, they can be pretty powerful, in my opinion. That's a, a really good one. I want to attach here the concept of expert roundups. Yeah? yeah. What do you think about them? Isn't this a good way to generate a lot of backlinks to one single blog post or roundup page? Yeah, it is. So there's a few angles here, isn't there? So if you're using that as a link building tactic, yeah, as to whether those links will be useful or not is another question. Generally with roundups, you, it's quite passive, isn't it? You'll be usually receiving an email saying, would you like to contribute? So you're not actively going looking, might actively go looking for these, but by and large, they come to you. So you've got less control over the signals that link might pass. I'm fairly confident though in Google's ability to, to ignore links now that aren't that helpful. So worst case scenario, I don't think they'll be damaging. Um, if it's a useful link, at least then you will benefit from that link being useful. How I look at those roundups personally is for awareness. I prefer to use them as either personal brand awareness or your business brand awareness. And they're useful for those kind of things. But also, so think about it from the other side. So if you're doing a roundup, actually, that's a fantastic way of leaning on people's egos to generate yeah. their own links. Great yeah. for social sharing. It's great for building backlinks. If you can invite 40 or 50 people into a roundup that have big audiences, chances are they may well link to it. I actually tend to. So on my own personal blog, I've been writing about SEO for a long time, digital marketing for a long time, probably 20 years. So on my personal website, and I think about this, but I don't particularly care. When I get introduced to an opportunity like a roundup, I usually comply. I'll give them my thoughts. When that goes live, actually, what I tend to do, I've got an area on my website called Featured In, and I'll link back to it because it shows my audience that actually people care about my insights and they care about my thoughts. Actually, I don't particularly care about the links, either them yeah. linking to me or me linking to them. But um, it's, it's trust building. It's trust it's building. It's trust building, yeah. It's trust building. Exactly. It's important and you can push it. You can even make a press release if it's an important roundup. Like yep. for SingSpider that I invite you officially to later on. Yep. <laughs> no, just <laughs> kidding. But that's the key. Absolutely. It's all about social signals. It's about trust, about experience. And of course, yeah, if it's good, it could also be backlinks. That's cool. This is interesting. So Google released yeah. a patent a few years ago. Can't remember the exact specifics. And I don't think they're particularly using it anymore, but I'm sure this has evolved with machine learning and AI, where they will take an understanding of how many people were searching for your brand name how many links you had pointing to your website and how many brand mentions you had, unlinked brand mentions. So understanding search volume and the impact that has on your SEO performance is actually quite important. So if you can be doing things that generate awareness for your brand and your search volume for your brand increases, that's a strong signal to search engines to show them actually if you're a stronger brand, that you're more relevant for better visibility in search results. So that can okay. be quite helpful for that. Really cool. Thank you so much. Guys, we have now 43 minutes, okay? In, in this podcast, typically the podcast length is 25 minutes. So Matt, you're nailing me down here. And I still have, I still have 
seven, eight open questions. Wow. Okay? wow so, okay. wow. We, I'll be concise. <laughs> we will shorten that up. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe we'll reschedule the first podcast in two episodes. Okay. So let's do a second round. But one, one thing for today, you said at the beginning, you are doing things different than others. Yeah. We heard a few things of that and I really like that. But maybe you can give me just a few lines about that. Okay. So this is interesting. So when we moved away from our e-commerce businesses, one of the things that I was incredibly interested in is how agencies operate. I spent mm -hmm. quite a bit of time consulting for various agencies. I think in the space of two years, I consulted for maybe 40 or 50 agencies. And there was only one of them that didn't have this problem. And that problem is scaling. The vast majority of them had a three to five year plan to sell their business. In order to do that, they needed very large sales teams to win new business. The problem with having large sales teams is you have to scale up and down very quickly. If your sales team wins a new contract, you've got to deliver the work. So what those agencies do is they then pull people into their business. Unfortunately, because good people are hard to find, they then tend to bring in people with very little experience. So that's the first problem that they face is the people doing the work are generally not that experienced when you have that kind of problem. Okay, so the second thing that they face is if the vast majority, just to give you some averages there, real raw numbers, it, it worked out about 50% of these agencies' workforces were sales. So half of the cost of their overheads, of their employee wages, was to pay for their sales team. So straight away, you're in a position where you're charging your clients twice as much as you have to because you're needing to pay for that sales team to operate. Then the third issue is you've got to scale up and down very quickly. That could mean people leaving a business if the sales team weren't performing. It could mean bringing people into the business if the sales team weren't performing. Then you've got the next problem that faces. So straight away, this route causes lots of different branches of the issue. So then the next issue is in order to be able to manage those people successfully, you need at least one person that knows a little bit about what they're talking about. The problem is that one person, their time is spread so thinly. So they introduce account managers into the mix. So their clients will speak to an account manager who will then speak to the person doing the work, who will then relay that information back to the account manager, who will relay it back to the client. The problem with that is obviously relaying information is never as good as just passing it directly. You, you Things get misinterpreted, things get missed you might misunderstand things. So that's that's a big problem. So what we did intentionally, this was in the first part of this is accidental. You know, I mentioned earlier that I'd been creating content for a long time. Back when I started doing digital marketing, the community for digital marketing was tiny, but I produced quite a lot of content at the time. I initially started writing a journal actually about the tests that we'd we'd implement, white papers, the kind of things that we tested that worked, that failed. And then I realized pretty quickly, actually, this could benefit other people. So I started writing those for other websites. Luckily, some of this content still exists now on the internet. On The websites are much bigger. Back then, they were pretty small. Search engine people, Mars, various platforms like that. So what I was finding is even during our e-commerce days, we were getting regular emails, probably on a weekly basis, for people saying, I love what you've done here. Can you help us, please? And we always said no to it because we didn't need to. It wasn't our business. We were in the business of e-commerce back then. So by design, once we'd consulted for those agencies, we then decided actually we could build a business model that didn't rely on the sales process, that didn't rely on scaling, 
that really could be heavily built around our operations team who could be incredibly experienced. We would save the overheads of having a sales team. We can build a team of people that have huge amounts of experience and still be cheaper than our competitors and produce better results than our competitors. So we don't have agency account, account executives or whatever it might be. Our clients come to whoever is doing the work. If something is specifically related to technical SEO, for example, they might go to a specific person. If it's related to link building, it might be another person, content, it might be another person. So there's no middleman confusing and slowing down things, but also there's no middleman adding to the cost and there's no sales pressure because we get a regular, we get very little churn of clients, but we get a regular collection of incoming inquiries of people wanting to work with us. So it's a perfect storm really, and it allows us to be very different to most agencies. But also then the big answer to that question is how we do things. So we do things very differently. We do a huge amount of testing and that testing points us in the direction of how things work. So just to give you an idea, we use APIs for most of the big tools and we collect a huge amount of keyword data and we've created our own turbulence system. So when we notice keyword fluctuations, increases, decreases, our systems will kick in and we'll start trying to reverse engineer what might have changed whether there's waiting on something or whether there's new signals or whatever it might be. So all of that testing allows us to see what kind of areas we need to be focusing in that's going to drive performance. And 100% of our clients are in growth because of that. So we've got a 100% success rate in that sense. It's all about that testing. That's so important. That's very interesting. I recently had, had, a, had a podcast interview with a guy who said, testing absolutely makes sense, but you need to have a significant size that it yeah. really makes sense. Yeah. Data is so important. And you see, yeah. this is a mistake that lots of e-commerce businesses make actually with their marketing and on, on their websites. They'll want to make decisions before they've got significant data. You've yeah. got to have enough data to make decisions. You can't, in, in an ads campaign, for example, you can't make a decision on a few hundred clicks. You know, if, you, if you've got a conversion rate of two, three, four, five percent, and you get a couple of hundred clicks, you're talking maybe five or 10, 15 orders that you're making decisions on. You've really got to allow more time to gather that data to make decisions and test. How much money would you start spending on a Google Ads campaign? So what would be the bare minimum that you can recommend? And at which level we say this is enough money so the machines really can do their job? Yeah. And what a great question, actually, because I think even in the last six months to 12 months, this has changed. If you'd have asked me that question a year ago, I would have said, you could probably start out with three, four, five hundred pounds or euros or dollars, whichever way you look at it. I think now you need at least probably a thousand. And the only yeah. reason I say that is because Google's decision making in ads is obviously becoming much more about machine learning, Pmax campaigns, much more about AI. And what we've noticed is if those campaigns aren't getting the data they need, they won't perform very well at all. Yep. You've yep. got to feed it data to make good decisions. And unfortunately, I think that's probably pushed out people who want to be spending 500 pounds a month. Yeah, I see the same results here as well. And when we in the agency discuss about the budgets, it's always the same that is a not under we say 700 euros. Yeah, It's our, let's say, breaking point. But uh, yeah, you need to have at least a bit of a budget. So it makes sense to really yeah. put into ads and let the machines do their job yeah, and improve sure. their delivery. One last question. 
I might know the answer, but we will see. Who has told you the most about digital marketing and e-commerce in your career? Okay, so this is difficult because there's so many people in our world that I admire. I was a big fan of, of Bill Slavsky, so his content taught me a lot. I had various conversations with him, unfortunately, before he passed, and he's such a great mind. Rand Fishkin, you know, I really, really admire Rand. Rand has, has done a lot for our industry that I think often people don't maybe fully appreciate. Before, Moz, Moz is on a bit of a backwards trajectory, isn't it, lately, over the past maybe four, five, six, seven years. But before yeah. that, it really was the go-to for people, for not only the community, but also for resource, for learning, for content. It was great at a certain point. But also, and this is going to sound a, little, a bit strange and a bit cheesy, but Actually, internally, we learn a lot from each other in our team. We do so much testing and we hypothesize, we hypothesize on so many different things. Actually, we bounce off each other so well and it's almost like a constant cycle of learning from each other. So actually, even though most listeners might not know most people in our team, I've probably learned from them just as much as I've learned from anybody. And I like to think hopefully I've helped people learn as well. I really like that answer. Yeah. And I believe that's absolutely the truth. If you have a good team that are professionals in all the different topics around marketing, you can really learn a lot from each other. And this is what I absolutely like. Thanks so much for this great interview. It was so much fun talking to you. It was, I think, one of the longest e-commerce yeah. podcast episodes that Sorry I did. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. It was very stunning. And guys, if you liked it, then don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and give us a review. So it would be great. And watch out for Matt and his great expertise and reach out to him. Maybe he can do some search engine optimization or marketing things for you at Marketing Labs. Appreciate that. Thank Have you. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks bye. for inviting me. Bye. And that's it for this episode of the Ecom Ops Podcast. If you enjoyed listening and would like us to find and interview more e-commerce operations experts, please search for EcomOps Podcast in your favorite podcast listening app and then subscribe, rate, and review. Until next time.